Well, there, everybody, another week goes flashing by. How are you out there, folks? Rick Wagner here, getting it right on Kansas KGLN here, Western Colorado, Eastern Utah. The internet ships at sea and who knows where else. We're at 1192.7 on Kansas We're at 980 and 101.3. So we're all over the place out there. Thanks a lot. Uh, we appreciate your listenership. Hope things are going well for you. Hope they're going better for you than they are the country. <laughs> After all, uh, we have to separate ourselves out sometimes, and we can't spend all of our time looking at politics because, well, it'll just make us crazy. And as we've said here before, some of the greatest advice that can be given to you came from the group The Eagles. That's a singing group where they said, don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. I think that's great advice. I don't know exactly what it means, but I have a strong feeling about what I think it means. So, uh, you know, each week we try and, and meet here. What we're hoping to do is answer some of the big questions. And, of course, the big question we want to answer is, of course, it's on everybody's mind, why do fools fall in love? We brought that up many times before. Never been able to answer the question because we keep having all this interference from political nitwits out there and what they're doing and, you know, sort of destroying the country, and we have to turn our attention to that. So someday we'll get to that. By the way, stories we talk about, some of them we post on our uh, web page, which you can find at the rickwagnershow.com or politicalviking.com, which is something we use uh, on some of our social media. Well, which is, i not crazy about social media, but uh, we do have to operate on it somewhat. So I thought we'd turn our attention a little bit to a few things. You know, it is always an interesting question of um, why are there so many people in politics that are so bad, right? Obviously, power attracts people who have bad ideas and who have problems with uh, society themselves and their impulses. Uh, Very few people are attracted to it to try and do good. Very, very small percent. I'm guessing about 5%. Also, uh, there is a disproportionate amount of lawyers that are in politics. And having worked around a lot of them, uh, it is heavily populated with uh, bizarre individuals, people who are on uh, unusual crusades, people who have a only passing relationship with uh, the rules of the road, as we would think of them as being practical in society. And they're attracted to, the, to politics, uh, probably for that very reason. I find that when you look at political situations, that once you can simulate empathy and simulate the normal human emotions and fully embrace narcissism, politics gets a lot easier for you. Yeah, things just kind of flow after you do that. For example, here where I'm at, and many of you be listening to in this least of the area, you know, we have a in my town. Uh, we have a situation where the city council, <laughs> some people used to refer to them as city fathers, stuff like that. Good Lord, what a sexist comment that is. But, uh, yeah, they've had some great ideas. None of the great ideas they've had involved them resigning, which, of course, would be the best idea. Uh, they won't do it. They hang on with, like, grim death to these jobs. But their latest is, of course, to build it a giant rec center here. Hmm. That's what I've ever injected a couple of times on the ballot that I know of because it, it is a methodology to accomplish things that have nothing to do really with the interest of most of the public. Part of it has to do with uh, this uh, desire to do something. Many people get involved in politics want to do something. That's the wrong impulse. 
Most of politics, the idea is, is to manage things, make things better, manage them in a way that's consistent with the constituents' desires. I know that sounds crazy and old-fashioned, doesn't it? You know, I've been reading the Federalist Papers, so I have a lot of old-fashioned ideas like that. Uh, unfortunately, most people get involved because, for whatever reason, they were never able to accomplish a whole lot in their lives. And so if they could just get into a position where they can use other people's money and the power of the state to accomplish something, they think that makes them more important. And so they get in jobs like this. So the the edifice complex, the idea to build things, uh, rec centers, buildings, city halls, parks, whatever, it is almost overpowering for people like this. The desire to manage things, to make them better, to make things run more smoothly, to be more efficient, who cares about that? I mean, that doesn't make you powerful and important. That's just doing the job. No one, no one cares about that, do they really? Of course we do, but not if you're sitting up there most of the time. There's the occasional, there is the occasional exception. We'd like to get more of those exceptions in government. It's very difficult. Uh, people who think that way generally aren't interested in government because of the sort of shady feeling it has to it. But anyway, so what we're having here is this yet another, uh, grandiose, expensive, anti-competitive project to put in front of the voters. These appear all over the place. I don't, I don't care where you're listening. If you're listening in Colorado or Utah or on the Internet or wherever you're at, these things pop up all the time. And they're not generally made, the proposal's not made to make your life better or more convenient or anything like that. It's to aggrandize someone else. And in this one, there is, is sort of a, a scary connection here. In Colorado, we've made the amazingly helpful decision to make recreational marijuana. Well, it's all okay. Hey, go ahead. What the heck? Drive crazy. So what? Stay at home. High all the time. Don't work. Okay. When you do go to work, do you know what you're doing? Probably not. You know, that's all all right. And we've had a lot of uh, that kind of feedback, I think, in society that makes it not such a great idea. But we've decided in where I live to now license cannabis shops in town. And, of course, we did that because the people want it. No, that's not really it. What they want is they want revenue, right? Because municipalities and the state have so taxed now the recreational marijuana industry uh, that uh, they've managed to really create a booming black market and uh, underground industry. In other words, illegal, just like it used to be. He really hasn't shrunk all that much because politicians cannot resist the urge to tax things that people use. Rather not, it's a good idea for them to use them. Doesn't matter. They're going to tax them. Alcohol, they've been doing that for many years. I haven't checked for a while, but I remember someone t- telling me that was in the business that about half the cost of uh, hard alcohol, you know, bourbon, scotch, things like that, is tax of one sort or another. And, of course, there's a huge black market in that. You don't hear about it anymore because no one really puts much enforcement into it. In other words, fakes tax stamp on cigarettes and alcohol and so forth. Now, there's no way they would make those illegal, even if people would put up with it, because what would what would they do without the money? So we're about to have cannabis shops in my area. Super good idea. And they've decided, you know, the people wouldn't vote for this ridiculously grandiose uh, rec center project in the past especially when we tried to make a permanent tax increase as part of that. 
And where I live right now, if you live in the city, the taxes are about 8.01% on every dollar, right? So what they want to do is say, oh, you know, hey, everybody, let's use the money from the cannabis shops. We'll, We'll push that out there and make them think that somehow cannabis taxes are going to pay for this great rec center. And then maybe they'll maybe we convince them it'll be free to use. Of course, it won't be free to use. Uh, and that'll be wonderful. And we'll get to build it and we'll get to parade around and say we did something. Not manage anything, mind you. Not make things more efficient. Not make things more cost effective. Not make things better for people. Just build things and put stuff out there so that we can parade around and say we accomplished something for ourselves, essentially. And, of course, bureaucrats love these kinds of projects because... It allows them to move further up in the bureaucracy or move to a new city by saying, oh, look what I did. I got them to pass this huge tax increase to pay for this thing. I'll bet you want a huge tax increase in your city just like that, don't you? Look, I can do it. If you hire me, pay me more than my last job, I can get that done. So everybody's in favor of it except the people that have to pay for it. Because once they understand what they're getting and what they're paying, sometimes they're a little reluctant especially when you're trying to sell it. Part of it's going to be paid for from revenue from things that haven't even been built or collected yet. That's the government we get. Sometimes that's the government we deserve when we don't pay attention to the Yes, my friend, just, hey, we'll just take it easy out there because we've got a long road to go here before we can really take action. We had uh, a little a little help in 2022. Well, big help if you consider we're at least took back the house and we can stop some of this stuff. Although the lame duck session, apparently those lame ducks got a lot more life in them than I thought. Uh, that's going to, we'll see how that turns out. But by the way, this is Rick Wagner here, getting it right on Kansas EKGLN, Western Colorado, Eastern Utah, and a lot of other places. All because of you folks, by the way, which I really appreciate. It's a huge honor to let you, uh, rather to have you allow me to, uh, wander aimlessly into the radio and say things <laughs> and have you listen. But I know when I, in the, in the first segment, we were kind of, we were talking about that, uh, going on and on about local government. I know using my local government, if I use that in a very broad sense of government, it is local. It doesn't govern very well, but nevertheless, it, it just is something that is so, uh, it, it's so concerning to me how much disservice we receive from our local governments anymore. And I recognize there's a number of reasons for that, uh, but mainly because most of the time local government doesn't respect the citizens. They, I guess they're learning from people in higher government uh, about that. And the other part is, of course, our fault for not really monitoring what they're doing and who's there and assuming somehow that it's not as important. And we spend a lot of time and effort in the conservative side of things worrying about things that are very important but aren't nearly as close to us. And so I guess I like to make that point. Also, many of us out there have city council and school board elections coming up this this off year, and they have to be changed. You have to make the change at the bottom. And it just because you say the bottom doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. It affects you more than almost anything or immediately is a better way to think of it. What happens in those sections that are immediately implemented? 
are school board elections beyond council and commissioner races. The school board elections obviously have taken center stage in many areas and should. Uh, I don't know what's happened. I, I am as mystified as most of you are by this incredibly swift push to over-sexualize, indoctrinate, and push bizarre, just strange philosophies and events and performances into schools. And I don't even mean high schools, of course. We mean like elementary schools and what we used to think of as primary schools. Um, it's, it's happened so fast. Things that three or four years ago we wouldn't have thought possible are happening regularly. And when confronted about them, far too many school boards not only resist, but attack the people who are questioning them. Uh, it's, it's dumbfounding. How did this happen so fast? And in some of these uh, philosophies and things, how, how did one half of 1% of the population somehow begin to dominate uh, the educational institutions in some of these places? It's, it's crazy. And I have to say, some of it happened on a lot of our watches. I, for some reason, remember very clearly being in college and people talking about some of the other students that were getting into like educational administration and this and that. It was thought of as a, a, a much easier major, an easy way out. Uh, it wasn't as rigorous as some of the, uh, the other majors. And I think we just kind of closed one eye to it and didn't realize that, you know, within 15 or 20 years after that, those people would be running the institutions at very high salaries. It's a very strange turn of events, but I kind of remember people saying, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's just because it's easy and they're doing this and that. No, no, all of, not all of the education, school of education classes are easy, don't get me wrong. But, you know, some of the administrative degrees and so forth like that. And there were a lot of theoretical nonsense, too. So you just assume that, oh, it's just a kind of place to go to take a couple easy classes, you know. But then, yeah, but then they become administrators of uh, schools, universities, things like that. And they eventually make a lot more money than you thought they were going to and have a lot more say about things and, uh, and act like that uh, the kids that go there are theirs, that they make the decisions about everything not the parents. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the seeds for all of that were laid some time ago, but the this enormous push towards certain bizarre things involved in the classroom and philosophies, man, that's fast. What I, I get a little concerned about is that, is, is it arriving now because they think they've won every place else and now it's time to indoctrinate the next generation? Because that's kind of what you do. I mean, you've pushed people in a certain way. You've uh, cowed dissent. You've suppressed people's opinions. You force a society to move in another direction. And now you um, go after the next generation to make sure that they don't resist. Gosh, I sound like a conspiracy. That's not a conspiracy. It's just an observation. Uh, so that in mind... You cannot ignore the school board elections. I don't care if you haven't had a kid in school in 30 years. They're out there, and they're going to end up running things, and they're going to end up you know, being involved in institutions and in things that are important to you. And if their value systems get turned upside down like they appear to be, and they become completely 
indoctrinated. And beyond that, there's a certain amount of fear that, you know, seven-year-olds, 12-year-olds, things like that have about the environment and things like that, that is getting pushed into them at the level of their schooling that is making them unhappy. Not only are they being indoctrinated towards things that are unhealthy and certainly not healthy for the body politic or not the body politic that we would recognize, uh, an even remotely healthy constitutional republic, but in a general sense, and they're frightened about the environment. They think that, you know, that uh, there's going to be, you know, perhaps a an, an ocean of uh, freezing water, you know, off uh, off the coast of, uh, I don't know, Illinois <laughs> or Indiana or something. You know, as, as the huge rises come up, they, they're afraid of that. They believe that everything is uh, racist and uh, sexist and phobic of, you know, there's a whole bunch of phobics you can throw in there now. And that, you know, they, they're, they're afraid of the world. And that is extremely unhealthy beyond the crazy, uh, philosophies. This intent to frighten these children so that they'll be more malleable. In addition to how being wrong in that sense, it, it makes them unhappy, makes them frightened. And that is wrong. Now we think it's wrong. Apparently the people that are pushing it don't. And I also wonder how many people that push on these philosophies really believe them. Now, there's some loopy people out there. And we talked about this, this sort of soft, uh, attacking kind of, uh, frightened person that exists on the far left out there that, you know, when challenged, they attack and cry and throw themselves in, in at people, uh, because they're so, uh, they're, they're a weak, not weak and necessarily like how much weight can they lift or this or that, but they have lived lives in many instances that are bizarrely unimpeded. How many people do you see in like these administrations and in um, far left political circles and these non-government organizations and all of these not for profits out there that are sort of fellow travelers in this? How many people do you see out there that have had their way paved for them by some program, some something? Barack Obama, of course, is a, is a prime example of this. He was chosen to be moved through politics. Uh, you know, he had the right background. He was with, uh, you know, Bernadette Dorn and Bill Ayers, you know, Weather Underground people. They were grooming him to become, uh, you know, a high politician in Chicago. You know, preferably the mayor of Chicago. Uh, he unfortunately had to sell for president of the United States, where you get a lot more back talk from people. If you're the mayor of Chicago, you don't get any back talk, apparently. You just tell people to shut up, and they do it. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, he had to become president, you know. And someday, maybe he'll have enough support to run for the mayor of Chicago. But, uh, you know, he, you know, he won't even go back to Chicago. You notice that? He's having this, this, re, this crazy mausoleum built for himself. Uh, in Chicago, his library, uh, he almost never goes back there. He and Michelle have no desire to go back to Illinois and live in uh, Lori Life for Chicago or anywhere near it. They live in Nantucket. They're, they're li- they live in Martha's Vineyard. That's where they're living. Uh, they're not going anywhere. That and their state in, of course, Hawaii. So they got nothing to do with Chicago. They 
once again, a, a more clear example of what Victor Davis Hanson and other people talk about. Government officials, people in power who do not have to live with the consequences of their policies. He has no intention of going anywhere where the policies that he advocates are in place or would affect him. No interest whatsoever. He stays as far away from those. Heck, you know, he's on an island. Think about that. He lives on an island in Martha's Vineyard. He's on an island in Hawaii. Talk about separating yourself from the consequences of your actions. <laughs> That's a pretty good trick. You got to hand oh, it to him. Oh, yeah. Here we are we'll back. back. All right. I've preached enough to you. I understand it gets tedious after a while. But uh, we'll have to look into some other things here now that are very important. For instance, I think we're going to have to have a regular segment here, which is, what is racist watch? Uh, well, we could expand that to racist or some other phobic or something along those lines, because there's so many ways to make mistakes out there, folks. Just everywhere you look, everywhere you look, you can make some kind of mistake if you're not careful. So we'll just try and keep up with it here periodically. Uh, the first uh, story I guess we talk about to help define that comes from, gosh, I hung on to it for a few days because I thought it was so darn good. Biden education official claims democracy fat phobia based on white supremacy. This is from Fox News. <laughs> so not thinking that being fat is a good thing and apparently liking democracy is another problem. Okay. Uh, so what you have here is someone that's really trying to help out. Now, this Biden education official that thinks those things, and this is really going to help you feel good about school and stuff like that. It's a Department of Education deputy director, of course, appointed under President Biden. And uh, she's apparently been making fun of evangelical Christians. She claimed democracy was based on white supremacy and that... Uh, Fat phobia, biased against fat people, is uh, somehow white supremacy and may, in fact, I can't really ascertain this exactly, tied somehow to democracy, but I, I could be overinterpreting that. Her name is, it's, just, it's good to let people know who these people are, Christina Ishmael. Uh, I would say that it's Ishmael or Ishmael, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, there's a picture of her here in this story. She's quite a robust-looking woman. Uh, or person, pardon me. <laughs> Go again. I'm I'm just out of line all the time. I don't mean to be. And she has uh, red hair. It combed up into that sort of uh, small shark fin, that uh, sort of a close cut, that shark fin, sort of a baby shark or perhaps a, a lemon shark, something like that. Not very big. She's tough. She's got a. She's standing a. Let's see the Department of Education sign, and she's got making a fist. So you know she means business. So that helps you understand that. She also tweeted out, this is, of course, you know, they hate to use Twitter, uh, Twitter now. We have a little story about that, too, by the way. She said, I walked away from a conversation because a white male, she bolded white male, a white male dominated the conversation. It was being facilitated by a woman of color. Sometimes walking away is the only thing to do. Hmm. I'm not sure she really made her point very well. I I just don't. I don't understand. She also uses the word folks spelled F-O-L-X. I'm not sure what the meaning of that is either. So, yeah, this is great. So you're paying this person, and uh, this is what she's saying. And she's in the Department of Education. Let's see what her job title is, shall we? I'm sure that'll make us feel a lot better about things. Uh, let's see here. I'm sure she's got a very important job. 
Oh, yes. She is she's ensuring that the Biden-Harris administration, don't forget that, is focused on ensuring our nation's schools pursue equity and opportunity for all students. And that uh, she is in charge of making sure that they get the technical education. She's deputy director of the Office of Educational Technology, which seems like kind of a weird use of language. But anyway, and the office implements policies for, quote, equity of access, close quote, to technology. So now you know everything. That explains it entirely. And no other explanation is necessary because of that really in-depth easy to understand analysis of what her job is. I mean, if we know what sort of person she is, but her job, that's been, that's also been explained exactly. So there you go. Oh, you know what else is, uh, and I think we brought this up as you know that daylight savings time, according to CNN, is also racist. It disproportionately impacts people of color. Now, you have to be very nuanced when you go into this analysis. It is because Switching back and forth, they like savings time, sometimes gives people some health problems. That is, they miss out on sleep, and you kind of kind of discombobulate it for a while, and the hour comes and goes, right? And that could be classified as health problems. And because people of color, according to CNN, are disproportionately uh, sort of impacted by this type of thing, by health concerns, that this just adds to that, uh, you know, and so it's... It disproportionately impacts people of color. I don't know what to say. Remember Rush Limbaugh used to have the thing uh, about how the, the, all of these stories go to the same place. And he said that someday there'll be a story, world ends tomorrow, women and minorities most badly hurt. <laughs> I was sort of, that was so true. So that helped out. I, I'm just glad we could help you understand that, that you could add to your knowledge of what's wrong in America and in apparently the world and that you'll be able to uh, address things correctly, right? And it, like we've said before, uh, if you go to the doctor, especially the new physicians, they are teaching critical race theory in over half of the top medical schools. So you'll be simpatico with them if you understand this stuff very well. So there you go. Now, in a completely different vein, I'd like to mention something that makes me kind of happy, but of course it doesn't really contribute to the diversity, equity, and inclusion in society, or the the, uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity. I sort of like to think of putting them in that order because I like the acronym better. But there is a kind of a gun boom going on. People buying guns. Yes, every time somebody like Slow Joe gets out there and starts talking about taking everybody's guns. You know, those semi-automatic weapons. Good Lord, who needs one of those? Oh, crazy assault weapons, assault pistols, assault derringers probably also included. Assault boomerangs, and I, it goes without saying, the, uh, the assault slingshot. Uh, yeah, those got, those have to be addressed. But people are buying a lot of guns. Uh, the FBI ran 192,749 background checks on Black Friday. That's a lot. One day. What do you know? Yeah, does it, does it ever occur to anybody out there in the administration who think that semi-automatic firearms are not new? Is it just because they have absolutely no clue as to what a firearm is, how it operates, what their history is, any of that stuff? I'm sure that's part of it. There's some other more insidious pieces to it. But I was thinking when I looked at the story and I saw Joe out there in between ice cream, you know, 
shouting uh, for guns to go off his lawn or whatever it is, that when he talks about semi-automatic firearms, they, they want you to believe that, see, all of this new thing with mass shootings and all these problems, gun violence in cities, where we all know really what the problem is there, is somehow firearms and this, and this new fangled invention, this semi-automatic, you know, that's what's causing it. They sort of lean towards like it's all new and people having them are new and what do they need them for? Oh, my gosh. I was looking back at, uh, and I've talked about this in the show before, looking back at my 1911 Model 45, and I have a 1911 uh, style 9mm. Now, that just means that it looks like a 1911 styled or originated pistol that you would all recognize has been in the military and in civilian hands uh, by, let's see, I think the original design is about 1906. They called it a 1911 design because that's when it was fully implemented. So it's been around for, I don't know, 111 years in that sort of configuration, a little longer if you want to go back to when it was developed, earlier if you go back to earlier versions of it. So it's pretty safe to say that semi-automatic firearms have been pretty readily available for 110, 120 years. But now, now we've discovered how dangerous they are. That's right. They are assault weapons. Now, pretty much every weapon that someone has used out there throughout time has been a, quote, weapon of war at some point. Right now, there's a lot of things in the hands of countries that don't have a lot of money that were used as weapons of war maybe 30, 40 years ago. And I suppose if you didn't have any money, you could use a weapon of war or something that came out from 19, maybe 1916, 1911, you know, something like a Browning automatic rifle. I don't know, that kind of stuff. That's been around a long time. Now, we have gotten rid of the idea that you can possess without some licensing a fully automatic weapon, which, of course, is the what the left would like you to think all semi-automatic weapons are fully automatic weapon. Some of them know the difference. They're just disingenuous. Some of them don't know the difference, and some of them just say whatever comes out of their mouth like a puppet. But we hear that all the time. Fully automatic weapons really are not all that great except in minimal types of uses. Anybody that's fired a fully automatic weapon knows that it's very difficult to keep it on target. It is not a sharpshooter weapon. It's not something that in even in any of these areas where you know you're trying to acquire a variety of targets in different spots around you that uh, someone in the military is going to use all that on full auto and just spray it around because the cyclic rate of fire in most of these fully automatic weapons will empty the magazine really fast. And when your magazine is empty, you go from having a very deadly weapon to just kind of an ungainly but heavy club until you get some more rounds in it, right? So just spraying them around is not something that's done very often. People too often, I think, look at like 50 caliber mounted machine guns when someone's laying down covering fire and thinks that's what all automatic weapons do. They have no idea. They're foolish. And the fact that you let people who are uneducated about a topic, foolish, hysterical, and have yet another agenda in many cases, 
make policy is something that we should really question. But people know the difference. People have been around firearms in the United States for a long time. Now, I would say this week that France is very happy because they're trying to get all of these weapons off the street. Yes, the weapons. So they've had a buyback or giveback program in France to return in handguns and firearms. And they've had enormous success with it. I read about that. Well, I looked a little into what people were turning in. Now, one thing that's interesting is that what a lot of people are turning in is stuff from the First and Second World Wars that have been in their families. They're saying, oh, these are handed down. Yeah, uh, a non-functioning or a, a rifle that you haven't had any ammunition for it in the last 75 years uh, that you turn in. I'm not exactly sure that you're clearing the street of people who are committing crimes with uh, that uh, weapon from the First World War or the Second World War that is, in effect, pretty useless. A lot of those are getting turned in. Handguns that are non-functioning are getting turned in. All sorts of crazy stuff. Remember, when a war is fought on your land, with the scale, let's say, World War II is fought, there's a lot of a lot of non-functioning or old weapons laying around. And people find them, have them, they keep them in the family. Uh, at the time, they were somewhat mementos of a terrible time in, in their history. And so they're turning those in. And the media wanted to make this sound like, oh, the French are so much better than us. And, of course, they are because they have that marvelous accent, you know, uh, that they, oh, they're turning their weapons in. They realize that that they can live safer if they don't have them. Yes, a non-functioning World War One German rifle that hasn't had manufactured ammunition for it in the last 60 years is probably something you don't mind getting rid of unless it has a very strong attachment for some sort of emotional reason. So there's that. The other thing, of course, is that we're not serfs. Isn't that funny? And we've never been peasants and serfs. We've never lived in a country where we're not allowed to own weapons like a lot of the European countries were. We're not allowed, uh, we're not living in a country where we had to tug our forelock when a nobleman rode by with his sword. Yeah, we didn't live like that. So I'm not particularly impressed hearing about those folks turning anything in. If they want to do that because that's their history, good for them. That's not ours. We have a very different history. And for the most part, people came to this country to get away from stuff like that. So if you have a history of not possessing weapons, not being able to do anything with them without the permission of your lord, who may in fact seize them from you, or even in some medieval history, if you could have had a sword... The expense of having a weapon, a true weapon, that might be wielded in battle or something, was so high, and your standard of living was so low, you don't have one. We're not that country. And I don't want to be. I don't want to have that history. So that's another overlay on it. So as far as I'm concerned, if you want to talk to me about what they're doing in Finland, or France, or Nova Scotia, or any place else, of course that's in our hemisphere, but... I thought it sounded kind of, you know, foreign. Then just shut up. I mean, they tell us to shut up all the time. Once in a while, I like to tell them that. You know, go on about your business. It's a completely different thing. Different kinds of weapons, different history, different country, different part of the world. So 
they'll see that stuff pumped up out there. I just saw it on the media like, oh, the French, they're turning in their weapons because they realize that will solve their violence problems. Really? Yeah. Does that explain, you know, that uh, all of the weapons that find their way into very serious gangs and so forth into places like England and France and so forth that come from, oh, I don't know, Syria and, uh, you know, Croatia and places like that? Yeah. So what happens is the people who really mean business have you know, access to things and the people who are going to get harmed by it have none at all. That's not a good scenario. Is there more, quote, gun crime in those places? Yeah. I mean, no, I'm sorry. There, I, I said it wrong. Is there more gun crime more, where we live? Yeah, there is. There are people, more, more people use firearms and crimes where we live, even as a per capita. They do have access to them. Would it stop the violence if we did away with firearms? A little, probably. I'm not going to pretend like it wouldn't. But would it be worth the trade-off? Not the way our country is constructed. Because we don't want to live in a state that is so burdensome and over-policed and over-regulated that nobody can do anything without the state being involved. Now, we don't really have countries like that anymore. They existed periodically. Because, frankly, the world is a mess. And no one is protecting anybody from anything except maybe the Chinese are protecting people from COVID by welding the door shut on people's houses who have COVID or they think have COVID. And if you want to live in a society that protects people that way, then I guess you should start lobbying Congress to do that. But I don't think anybody listening to this show believes that or wants that. We pay a price for freedom, always have. But the best way to combat someone taking advantage of another person is to help that person be so equipped so that they don't take get taken advantage of. Does that sound Wild West to you, shooting it out in the streets and so forth? I don't think so. Now, people on the left think it does. I think what you find is that when there is the ability to respond in an appropriate fashion to a certain level of violence, that level of violence starts to taper off. When you know those people that you would like to victimize are unable to respond to the level of violence you're able to bring to the situation, then violence seems to go up. It just takes a few people feeling that way to create a very serious societal problem. For that reason, we've made the decision we want people to be free, and people who are free are free to defend themselves. That's part of the definition. So stop with the, uh, the oh, the French have really got this figured out. They want their land to be safe. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of firearms, I was reading that the Montana Attorney General, among some others, have been concerned that uh, United Postal Service and FedEx are working with the Biden administration to track gun owners and things that are sent out. It's a little hazy at this point, but uh, the Mon- Montana's top law official, this was in the Washington Free Beacon, is concerned that shipping giants UPS and FedEx are working with the Biden administration to bypass laws that bar the federal government from creating a national database of American gun owners. So we all know that's been bypassed. We saw that, how they're working around that just a few months ago. But anyway, uh, Montana Attorney General Austin Knudsen, or Knudsen, not sure, alleges that new shipping guidelines allow UPS and FedEx to track firearm sales with unprecedented specificity and bypass warrant requirements to share that information with federal agencies. Now, beyond the issue with firearms, 
this is becoming a very, very troubling issue. It is clear, crystal clear, or let's make it very clear, as uh, Karine Jean-Pierre would say about Biden, who makes nothing clear, that the government, the federal government, the state government, any government, is not permitted to use private companies to engage in behavior on its behalf in ways that it cannot engage itself. In other words, you can't use proxies to do things that you're not allowed to do within a constitution. No, there are many things that private companies can do that are specifically not allowed for the government to do. So for a governmental unit to take advantage of that and sort of give a wink and a nod to them and get very close to them, maybe even threaten them a little bit to turn over their data or whatever, so that they are able to gather data and do things that the federal government would otherwise be disallowed from doing is a violation of the Constitution and a big one. So we have this happening more and more. And this is one of the things that's going on with these lawsuits that you hear a little bit about and you don't hear much of it in the mainstream media that are going on as they are trying to determine the complicity of the Biden administration in working with tech titans. I always like that tech titan. It sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon show in suppressing speech. We know that uh, just recently, Jean Jen Psaki, remember her? The red menace from uh, the Biden administration before Karine Janvier. Yes, she was subpoenaed as part of this lawsuit that is being brought by a number of individuals and government and states to determine whether or not the Biden administration was working with these private companies and having the companies essentially work at their direction to suppress speech, particularly about what was going on with COVID. Doesn't mean they're not doing it all the time, but that was, you need to narrow it down. And uh, that's a good one because everybody knows that was going on. So they've been trying to determine that. There's been a huge resistance from uh, the deep state to turning over any information or saying anything about this at all, which tells you there's a lot going on there. And we have to, this has to be, has to be snuffed out. We cannot allow the government to use regular businesses to impinge on your rights in ways that they could not do as the government. We'll be back next week.